Okay, questions, thoughts, um, anything from this morning in Psalm 33? Start <laughs> on my face. You made a statement that, uh, like your podium and everything, was God spoken, even though it's material and has atoms in it. Is everything God spoken? Everything that exists, yes. So, even though it's bad for you? Yes. All right. Poison is exists because God spoke it. In, I mean, we're talking a base level. I mean, so it's this this piece of paper. A lot of man-made processing took place. So I'm talking, if you track the cord all the way back to the wall. So like, what's this paper made out of? It's made out of wood pulp and ink, right? So if you just track the wood pulp, what's that made from? It's made from wood. What's the wood from? Well, it's organic material, cells. You keep pushing back. You're going to get to atoms. I mean, the, what we're discovering, as far as we can tell, is there is no elemental foundation. And the word element was supposed to mean something, I believe, that was undivisible. It was... Um, it was, that's what an element was meant to be. It's, you can't take it apart any further. And yet, as we learn more and more, we learn, no, okay, there's atoms. And then we learn, okay, there's, within atoms, there's things. And within those, but that regress cannot be infinite, right? Eventually, you're going to get to the thing that you, is elemental, that is indivisible. What's that, the cause of that thing? Hebrews 1, 3. He upholds all things by the power of his word. Mm-hmm. So, it, it's, it's saying at a foundational root level, everything that is, is spoken into existence by God. And so that is the metaphysical foundation of being, all being. If anything is, if it be, that is its ultimate metaphysical foundation. That's what I was saying. What I was getting at was the, the wisdom or knowledge we've developed like in uh, medical uh, advancements and things like that are those spoken in by God or what's the wisdom given to us from God right. the result and going from there well you're talking about knowledge which um, is a different category what I'm so I can address that in a moment what I distinguish is knowledge is what is known knowledge is not a thing like this podium is a thing right you can't have a pound of knowledge Knowledge doesn't extend into space and time, which is, I think, what we the basic definition we use for, for matter, things that extend into space and time. Um, I could be wrong. Dave, will that work for a working definition? Okay. Our resident. See, I'm, I'm talking about physics, and we got a, a college physics professor here. So knowledge is a thing. So all true knowledge, ultimately, in one sense, does find its source in God, because God, this is sort of Calvin's medieval way of thinking of, um, of knowledge is God is omniscient, he knows all things. So any knowledge that is true is therefore some subset of what God knows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so our ability to investigate and to learn has more to do, I think, with us being made in God's image and discovering out the world that he made. So the Bible talks about things that God did in creation that we're only recently learning about. The springs of the deep are talked about in Job. We've only in the last you know, century discovered that, I think, could be wrong, um, and other things, right? And there are still things that God silences Job with that we still don't know the answers to. Do you know? The, you know, he goes to this long list of questions. So our ability to know and gain knowledge is only possible because in him we live, move, and have our being. In one sense, um, the, uh, 
The orderliness, the orderliness of the universe is again a, a, a principle or what scientists would call the uniformity of nature. The fact that uh, t- tomorrow ought to be like today, that, that expectation, is again because God said and he is orderly and so gravity goes down today and we should expect it to go down tomorrow and so on. So our ability to search that out, discover things, learn, um, is ultimately because of him. But our knowledge and gaining of knowledge does not exist like the universe exists spoken by God. It, it, it still has its roots in God. It's only possible because, A, we're made in his image and we think we're rational, and B, because nature is, shows uniformity, um, which without uniformity, there is no knowledge, right? I mean, because then it's just this happened the one time and I have no reason to think it'll happen a second time because, anyway, we're going, anyway, is that... Yeah. Am I scratching where you're reaching at all, or, or am I just, just babbling well, off yeah, in I was, some direction? I was, I was thinking more in the ways, so God created like GMOs? God created, think about like Lego bricks. God created the Lego bricks. We can make a GMO out of the Lego bricks. We can make um, a chemical, we can make mustard gas out of the Lego bricks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're making these things out of his foundational his foundational elements and the things he made. So ultimately, GMOs exist because God spoke the universe into creation. Now that said, that doesn't mean everything that is made is good by us. God looked at what he made and it was good. And then people make altars and sacrifice their children on them to Molech and God hates it. Right? So so just so you cannot justify anything we make by saying, well, God made it. Well, yes and no. He made the 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 material from which we make things. But each thing we make, I think, has to be then judged on its own merits um, as, as based on the rest of Scripture. So I don't particularly have an opinion about GMOs, which well, you brought up twice the- now. So I'm going to punt on that. All I'm saying is you could not justify GMOs simply because God made it. You'd have to justify it on other levels. Um, and I'm guessing the arguments in favor of them would be something along the lines of dominion and controlling the garden and restraining. I think I, I simply am too ignorant on that to have a strong opinion. But I, I know the arguments are going to be it's going to be better, it's going to produce more fruit, it's going to be desist, resistant to disease. All of that's going to come under the heading of um, restraining the fall and exercising dominion over the garden. Those are going to be the arguments that I think will be put forward in, in favor of it. I have not a position to evaluate that, so I'm going to punt. Well, I was just thinking about the technology that was developed for that, how it's advanced some of the medical findings we're finding today in amino acids and things like that to help conquer uh, ills that children have and other people have we're finding is in our body that we've not been able to conquer. No, and then then we open a Pandora's box, the whole CRISPR technology thing. And again, I don't know nearly enough about that to, to say anything other than it's frightening what things they're talking about us being able to do in the near future. It's frightening with the, some of the CRISPR technology stuff. Mm-hmm. If you've heard anything about that, it's, it opens a whole, a whole new realm of possibilities are going to be on the table. If they're not already on the table, they'll be on the table soon. It will take a lot of wisdom to work through. And I'm not in any position to work through that right now. Um, <laughs> but I would say knowledge and wisdom are a different category than physical creation. Um, Okay. Other questions? More thoughts? 
As usual, I got someplace else we can go, but I'll open it up if anyone has any other questions or thoughts before we go there. Going once, going twice. Oh, in the back. <laughs> Wait until the very last moment. Okay. Okay. Uh, talking about this, um, basically knowledge that we don't probably have a wisdom to utilize properly. I always wondered what the level of uh, technology was before the flood, <laughs> and why God. I too, I too wonder why God had to wipe out not only humans but most of the animal species too. Yeah, we we, we there's two two great cataclysms in time and space that we have a very hard time getting behind. One is the fall, and the other is the flood. Um, very hard to get behind, and honestly, the evidence biblically doesn't give us much knowledge. We know people lived longer. Um, we know that the thoughts and intents of the heart, both before and after the flood, etc., are evil continually. Um, so certainly... Like most of our ability with technology, because we live for such relatively short periods of time, is due to us being able to compile information and, and compile data, which if you live to be 900-something years old, um, would, would mean that without that technology of, of compiling data, you could just in your own lifespan compile a lot more data. We don't know how... Uh, I mean, there are theories, but we don't know how the pyramids were built. We don't know how Stonehenge was. I mean, there's technological feats of the ancient world even, um, and I know I'm not suggesting, I don't have an opinion one way or the other whether the pyramids are antediluvial. Antediluvial is the technical term, the guild shop term for, for before the flood. Um, but the, the ability, those people who lived back then would be far more inherently brilliant than we um, we are the genetic runts of the gene pool, right? So um, our, our gene pool is thinning out. And so they would have lived longer, have been more inherently brilliant. And certainly the thrust of uh, Genesis 11 and Babel is the potential of what man could do all grouped together as they build work on this tower. So the implication of, of, of the potential accomplishments technologically, sociologically of man is, is certainly in play. What they were capable of, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, but I, it's, I think it, if you're suggesting we underestimate them, I think that's very, very... Like, give me one example. Go to, go to, Genesis, um, go to Genesis 4. You know, um, to show you the inherent brilliance of these people, So, in Genesis 4, uh, yeah, okay. So, verse 17, Cain knew his wife, she conceived and bore Enoch. Uh, when he built a city, he named, uh, the, he called the name of the city by which, after the name of his son, Enoch. So, Enoch is Cain's son. To Enoch was born Erad, grandson. Erad fathered Mahujael, great-grandson. Mahujael fathered Methushael, great-great-grandson. 
And Mahuthshael fathered Lamech, great, great, great grandson. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah. The name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. So we got stringed instruments and wood and, and woodwind instruments. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Bronze and iron smelting. What are we, five, six generations out? I mean, these people are smart inherently. And their ability to learn from their environment, to manipulate their environment, is evidently high. Um, and so, yeah, they don't have you know, iPhones, but <laughs> just because they don't, don't have the, some of the technology that we have. And largely, our technology is built upon our ability. What, what I was talking about, our ability to compound information. There's no human being on the planet who can build an iPhone. There's no human being on the planet who has the knowledge to build an iPhone, inherently. If you, you just, without X, you need groups of people subdivided into individual tasks. You need wealths of information that no one person has possession of. That, that's what I'm talking about uh, when I say that our compiling of information is, is how we're able to get a lot of what we get done. These people are inherently brilliant. I mean, Adam's able to classify with names that mean things the entire animal kingdom in a day. That's brilliant, you know, and, and making names that mean, that aren't just arbitrary. I mean, that's part of what you get from Genesis 2 is Adam's naming, or no, Genesis 2, is Adam's naming is meant to be seen as done rightly. Like, we're seeing, God says it's very good, and now God brings out Adam, and part of what we're seeing is he knows how to exercise him, and he's doing it rightly, he's doing it well. Uh, these are the names by which these things are called, you know, to this day as Moses is writing, as it were. Um, so Adam's naming was is meant to be seen as well done, again, an evidence of his mind, his intellect. But is that what you're getting at, or am I... Going a, a far afield. Well, I'm just wondering the things in science that we can do with the genetic mm. material and how possibly, possibly GMOs getting out into the environment and mixing with natural strains and just doing whatever we want to do. Kind of reminds me of Tower of Babel, too, because right. they said, you know, there's no limit to what they can do. Right. And I'm just wondering, sometimes I think, are we approaching that same point of knowledge? Because uh, it says that it's in the time of Noah, so will it be the last days. Mm. Um, we're at the point of like destroying ourselves and destroying God's creation type of thing. Just kind of a thought, thought experiment, not to... Right. Well, I think the, the passage you're referencing about justice in the days of Noah... I think that's referencing the suddenness, the unexpectedness of judgment coming. But, but there may be other similarities. But certainly um, the cavalier attitude that is throughout Scripture revealed in man's heart, whether it be in Babel, let us make a name for ourselves. I mean, that's the huge contrast between Genesis 11 and 12 as man is saying, let us make a name for ourselves. And in chapter 12, God says to him, Abraham, I'm going to make a name for you. You know, am I going to make a name for myself, or is God going to make a name for me? All the way to Nebuchadnezzar on the top of the walls, look at what I've done, right? There's this arrogance in man's heart, which is not 
um, which is not necessarily involved in scientific inquiry, right? There's, there's no necessary, there's evidence we have, Newton and other people, of, of humble, I'm investigating God's creation, you know? So, so scientific inquiry does not have to come from that attitude, but so much of it is. Zeb? There is, excuse me, um, there's also the trajectory, if you want to think of it that way, of Scripture in that the cross is kind of the apex of the of history, and what we're doing now is working basically almost like beating back the curse, where the the church is the antithesis of Babel. We are one body made up of all these different members. And so I, I would I would argue that all of the, the GMOs is us taking the dominion that God has given us and redeeming the world that he has given us in spite of the sinfulness that still exists. Okay. Let me bounce off your Babel thing. Certainly making one new man where there's neither Greek nor um, barbarian, male nor female, slave nor free, is certainly an undoing of the curse of Babel. So in the church, these barriers, linguistic barriers, cultural barriers, people group barriers are taken down. That's absolutely that. Um, I think the fear with the GMO stuff is that we might be meddling with stuff we don't understand. The, the goal of exercising dominion, the goal of, of producing better and more food is certainly a laudable goal. I think, again, I'm just pushing down the other side, the, the concern would be, are we utilizing things we don't understand? I don't know whether we are or not. I think the argument's not going to be we ought not to mess with this. Rather, we ought to better understand what we're doing before we do it. I think, but and I'm not in a position to know how well we do or don't understand these things. That's, Fair enough, but yeah. uh, I think the two billion people that didn't starve to death in the last 30 years are probably happy that we meddled with it before knowing <laughs> everything. I'm sure they are as well as that. I've been, I've been, we're in the middle of corn country, so I don't need, I should understand which way the audience is leaning here. I got you. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah, like I said, I got a book on bioethics I haven't started reading yet because it's big and slow. Um, but no, but these are things we need to think through. I mean, one of the things we've got with reproductive technology is we've now got, you know, um, we, we live in a world with kids without parents, parents without kids, married. It's just we've, we've so separated things out um, that, that uh, what I mean, like, you, I don't, obviously not, Zeb was looking at me funny, I said kids without parents. What I mean is we've, we've separated it out. So normally God makes this pattern where man and woman come together and they have kids and they're fruitful and there's a family. We've now got frozen, fertilized embryos on ice. There's one woman who was just born who was on ice for 10 years before being adopted by a family. Born, alive. Yeah. That, that's what I'm talking about. It's just like, it's, it's crazy how different than the pattern things are now and the questions we've got to think through, you know. I was more kind of wondering what you meant by parents without kids because generally it's kind of hard to be a... That was a misspeak. I meant, I meant we've got married people. But yeah, we've totally separated it out. So before... No, no, be, no. No, no, no. Yes, yes, Lee. What I mean is our reproductive technology is able to eliminate children and conception entirely, whereas before the pill, the overwhelming majority of sexual unions that occurred with any regularity resulted in children. 
Um, now we have the power to say, no, we don't want that. And people who aren't married, and I want to have a kid. And we, we are exercising control and dominion in ways that are way different than anything that came originally. We got a hand up in the back. We're going all into hot spots. That's fine. I did not expect us to go here, but that's cool. Okay. That's fine. Well, um, I gotta, I, I'll, just, I'll read up on GMOs and I'll come back next week ready to go. Okay. You got my word. Go, what, go, go. What I'm. What I'm addressing <laughs> is not necessarily GMOs, but okay. where they're going okay. in research right now with like taking uh, DNA from a, uh, basically two males or two females mm. and implanting it into an embryo or an egg yeah. and creating a, a human that has two male parent parents. Mm. Or I've heard right now they're experimenting trying to make like monkeys more intelligent mm. to the point of where you know, combining human and, which is like mm. kind of getting away from kinds. In the Bible, each right. after their own kinds, it's mixing different species. Yep. But taking that to the point of mixing it with human DNA. Okay. Uh, where, you know, where do you stop? And knowing the way the human mind is, don't. Yeah. I'm going to rein things in. Only by the moment. grace of God. I'm going to, stop? I've got an answer. I've got an answer. Psalm 33, verse... 10, the Lord brings the counsels of the nation to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. We're only going to go as far as God's willing to let us go. It doesn't mean where we go is all good. It doesn't mean everything we do is right. But certainly, the picture is God's sovereign, and he, he will frustrate the plans he wants to frustrate. He will bring to nothing the counsels that he wants to bring to nothing. And so that doesn't mean everything we can do, we ought to do. But it does mean we don't need to worry about the world going off the rails. I mean, in one sense, the world's going to go from bad to worse. Paul tells Timothy that. But on the other hand, we have the confidence that, hey. Right, right, right. Okay, I want to, okay, other questions that don't have to do with GMOs. <laughs> yes. Oh, w- yes. Would you confirm the last blank? Oh, the last blank. Oh, gladly. Request. Request. I was just trying to highlight the fact that I thought it was surprising that there's only one request in this one petition in this entire psalm, and it doesn't come until the very, very end of the psalm itself. Um, and it's simply a petition after thinking through God's goodness, character, control, that his steadfast love would be directed towards us. Um, his, so that's, that's the last blank. Yes! And you can... I know I've met you, but I am not remembering your name. I'll just freely admit that. Rather than, hey, buddy, you know, just, um, there he is. All right. You, I'm George. George. Nice to meet you. Very good, George. Nice to meet you again. I uh, just wanted to uh, commend you for tying us back to the knowledge of God and his sustenance of everything through his word. Like, that's, I haven't, uh, I've heard that from a few Christians before, but I haven't heard it preached before, and that's amazing. Like, he if he upholds all things by the word of his power, then everything you do when you're drinking coffee or if you're going out to lunch yeah. or if you're just looking at the sky, everything is is reading a book. Like it's just reading more and more of who Jesus is through everything. So yeah. just wanted to uh, like commend you on that. That like undoes so much damage that's been done in like the past years. So. Well, thank you. And one of the things I want to do is develop that further um, is... Because God's, I use the term weapon of choice, his tool of choice, is, seems to be speech, talking. I mean, 
Um, he, it's how he fights his... I mean, so when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, how does he defeat his enemies? Sword of his mouth, he talks. So Luther, in a mighty fortress is our God, one little word shall fell him. It's kind of an anticlimactic battle, right? You know, all the armies of the world will raid up, and you know, Jesus shows up and he speaks. He creates, he speaks. He creates his people by his word. How does he sanctify and grow his people? By his word. You eat like newborn babes hunger for the pure milk of the word. Which then, being made in his image, I think it starts to make some sense of why the Bible says what we do with our speech is so important. And why God cares about how we use our words. You go through the Proverbs, it's like I'd guess a fifth of the Proverbs deal with speech, one way or the other. Because if God says, hi, I'm God, and I talk, and my, my speech is powerful, and the Proverbs come around, they're like, you know, the, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Your, your words can get, I mean, to a less, much, much lesser extent, but your words are powerful. They can build up or tear down. They can be like sword thrusts, one proverb says. Um, and so how, and what's, what's, I'd argue the most significant things we can do in our life are using words. Evangelism, speaking the gospel, words. Um, counseling, encouraging, comforting. Yes, there are significant things we can do simply by physically helping and providing for things and helping people move. But I think the majority, I think I'd argue the majority of the things we do of any import are going to involve communication, speaking, right? It's also why monasteries are a bad idea, <laughs> you know? Um, no, so, so when you stop and think how many of the activities God engages in are done through speech, through speaking, I mean, so much so that the, the, the second person of the Godhead is the word, um, and then he turns around and makes us in his image, and we speech, speak, and then he has a lot to say about how we speak. It's, it's a sacred thing to speak. It's a sacred thing. Uh, the, other, the other point I'll make with, with that is um, we, are, we must not forget that speech is fundamentally, I'd almost say it's like a divine attribute. I mean, it, it's God. This is actually one of the... Um, one of the realities that it helps set up the, uh, the, where the Trinity is important. D.A. Carson makes this point that every other conception of God in the big monotheistic religions, be it Islam or, or Judaism, don't have a Trinitarian God is, is who they're worshiping. And one of the practical outworkings of that is Islam and Judaism get a holy God, a righteous God, a, a judging God, but they struggle with really fleshing out a loving God because it's very hard to see in Islam or in Judaism before creation who God's loving because he's alone. It's hard to see how this God is relational in nature because it looks as though that's a development that occurs with creation um, and how this God is communicative foundationally if really he's not, who's he communicating to before creation? So what we've got in the revelation of Scripture is a God who has forever been in fellowship with and if in conversation, if you will, with himself. We even get hints at this, little, little behind-the-curtain looks, like in Titus 1-2. The Apostle Paul talks about how he's laboring as an apostle for the hopes of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began, which has to be some 
intra-Trinitarian communication. If I were to guess, I would guess the Son agreeing to redeem the people the Father gives him, but I could be wrong. But what we're still using is language categories, and which is not to say God has vocal cords, but it's still a fit way of speaking of intra-Trinitarian communication is still using linguistic categories, whatever that means. So at God's foundational nature, always and forever, he's a talking God. He's a communicative God. He's a self-revealing God. He is a loving God. There's never been a time where he hasn't been doing these things. And so when Genesis 1-1 shows up, he's not doing anything fundamentally new or different when he speaks. And so that's huge. It also means language is not some human thing that we get to define. If it's, if, it, if it's sourced in God, then God gets to define what to do with it. And I, and I think that tends to be another one of our assumptions is that language is this creaturely thing. Just as we think music, we want to think, therefore, we can do with it what we want. And, you know, God created the universe to a soundtrack. I don't know if you know that. According to Job, um, God, one of the, another one of the questions God asked Job, were you there when he created the stars and the, the sons of God shouted, for, sang for joy? So apparently, while God's creating the universe, the angels, who I'm guessing were made early on, day one, begin singing as he goes about his work of creation. Um, so music doesn't start here on earth. Um, we did a series a couple of years ago on the inspiration and the of Scripture, and the whole very first message was the talking God. And again, here's a question. Who's the first person to speak human words? God, talking to the man in the garden. The very first person to use human speech is God. It's, it starts with him, not with us. It's given to us, and that gives us a whole different response of, okay, how do we steward this? How do we use this? How do we faithfully carry out what we're supposed to do with it? As opposed to, here's this thing we came up with, you know, and so it's a very different, very different approach. Words and language are sacred, and to some degree, they're almost magic, in in a sense. Yes, mother. Oh, dear. The microphone? No, no. The, The seven people who listen to this need to know what you're saying. Your words matter. Eight, okay, eight, got it. So no, no, into the microphone, mom. You can't put the microphone away from you. It's kind of defeating the purpose. It's on. It's on. So, can you explain to me when God in the garden, when the serpent beguiled, when she says, when Eve says, the serpent beguiled me. Did he do that with speech? That's the telling of Genesis, yes. So the first attempt to usurp is a question. So is the serpent beguiling the first attempt of the devil to take God's words and substitute his? Yes. I'll take it a step further because we live in a day and age where everyone wants to dialogue and have a conversation. All of the evils in the world today are the result of a conversation and just asking some questions, right? Did God really say? So, so it's not to say we shouldn't be having conversations, but people will say, I just want to have a dialogue, as if that's a morally neutral category, as if what harm could come from a dialogue and a conversation? Well, look around you. There's a conversation in the garden. Some questions were asked, and they had a huge impact. 
Again, not saying we should be anti-conversation, but people will throw that out. We want to keep the dialogue open. We want to have conversation. Those are significant and weighty things. That's all I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. When, when God's work was, at, when Satan waged his war on God, he did it with words. He didn't just show up and kill the man or the woman. I mean, we, we think of evil in those categories, you know, some powerful, destructive, killing force. It's a smart snake that's asking some questions. That's, and make, telling some lies. Yes, Elsa. I was just thinking about today how, they, how the enemy is changing the meaning of words yeah. and uh, everything going on today and repeating lies, if you mm. repeat them often enough. I mean, this has been done before in history, yeah. how everything's being distorted, and that's, in a way, Satan using God's mechanism and distorting it right. for his benefit. Right. And we should be aware of that. No, the, I think... I think some of the most godless places in universities are English departments. Um, no, and I, I absolutely sincerely mean that because let me, let me justify that statement. What I mean by that is current language theory, um, which is postmodern, poststructural, uh, which basically results in, at the, at the street level, this means whatever you want it to mean. Words don't have inherent meaning. Um, author constructed meaning, things like that. If the only way we can know God is through his word, if the only lifeline we have, the only gospel we have comes in words, um, then attacking the use of words and the meaning of words is massive in its, its corruption, corrupting ability. Because in the church, this is spreading the church people, you go to Bible study, well, this means to me, this means to me, what this means to me. And we gotta start with what it means. Um, and so that's what I mean by saying evil in the sense of the, the damage it does in its effect when you get people who are convinced. And I talk to people, they go to college, and they're convinced words can mean whatever you want them to mean. Now, the great irony is they will use words to explain that to you. You know, and they expect you to understand them rightly. We all know what that is. <laughs> right, right. So Al Mohler's got this great story. Um, We've got five minutes left. Well, he, there was a, a major coup in the Southern Baptist denomination 20 years ago or whenever when Al Mohler was made the president of Southern. The conservative element got control just long enough to put him in. And, and the, the liberal elements in, in the Southern Baptist denomination knew what he was planning on doing. So he shows up to his first convocation chapel and he basically drops the gauntlet saying, we intend to hold people to the, the statement of faith, which all the professors every year had to sign and reaffirm that they, there's some Latin phrase without hesitation, they had to sign. Um, and so he, he was being interviewed by another pastor and he said one of the things that helped was Southern had a very nuanced and articulate um, statement of faith which all the professors had to sign each year, reaffirm. They believed without reservation. But what had happened was over the years, it was people were allowed to interpret it to mean whatever they wanted it to mean. So he shows up at the chapel and he says, starting with my presidency, we are going to require the faculty to, to actually hold to that. And he, he gets back to his office and he tells his secretary, just wait. And sure enough, a delegation from the English department shows up. And they come in and they read him the riot act and they tell him, you can't do this. And the statement of faith means whatever we want it to mean. And 
and uh, I can get you a copy of this. It's, it's, it's funny the way he tells it. He goes, and I didn't know what else to say, and I knew this was one of those defining moments in my presidency, and I simply said, you're fired. <laughs> and they said, oh, but we've got contracts, and we've got, you know, and he goes, oh, your contract means what I want it to mean. And, um, and he goes, no, of course, we honored their contracts, and it took him a couple of years to get some of them out of there, but it was just showing the hypocrisy. These people charge in, we can make this mean whatever we want it to mean. Except my contract does not mean whatever you want it to mean. My contract has an objective. And this is what tends to happen in the academy. People tend to be relativistic and postmodern for every discipline but their own. They tend to be very, in my discipline, be it music, be it science, be it math, be it whatever, that things are, they have meaning. In every other discipline, well, yeah. Um, and so th- these are some of the things that come down with words and people making things mean what they want them to mean. And... and it's it's uh, it's gonna be very difficult for people to to come to grips with God's word and what it means if they think it can mean whatever they want it to mean. And when you hear twenty seven different teachers saying the thing means whatever, they, it's just gonna make people think. Well, see, there is no truth because even the Christians can't agree on what it says. Um, you know, so it, it's it's uh, it's language is huge. I mean, th- think one other thing. Neil Poston made this point in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I just want to give credit because I think this is a profound point. But one of the radical implications of the uh, second commandment, the commandment against um, imaging God, think about this. But I think for the first time in human history, here is a God that can only be approached and worshipped linguistically. You can't draw him. You can't image him. So what's the only way I can learn of and approach this God? Through words. Words he's revealed about himself, words we sing to him. But it's, here's a link. I mean, if that doesn't emphasize the linguistic nature of God, you cannot draw him. Who will you compare him to? Then how do I know anything about him? Listen, he will speak. His word is here. We will tell you what he has said. Propositionally, through statements, through words, you can't just have a dance that represents him. You need to say something. And here's a God who is, there's content, and that's it. There's no pictures, there's no images, there's words. That's how you can know and interact with this guy. That's, I mean, I, I remember when Postman made that observation. It's not even the central point of his book, and I was like, whoa, that's huge. He's absolutely right. The only way you could approach, know anything about, or interact with and worship the Hebrew God, Yahweh, is through words. That's it. Spoken words, red words, whatever you want, but that's it. I was just... Thunderstruck, you know, some of those obvious things that are just like, duh, whoa, that was huge. Um, so yeah, words, words are important. <laughs> um, five minutes. Any follow-up questions on that? Then I want to take five minutes to talk about um, what I started at the beginning, what you brought up for the prayer request, the, the new song concept of, of being struck with wonder of God's word. In one sense, I suspect... Nothing we looked at today was, or very little of what we looked at today was news or new. God made the world with his word. God upholds it with his word. God is powerful and he accomplishes his purposes and the nations don't succeed against him. God saves those who hope in him, so hope in him, right? I mean, these are the basic things we're looking at. And yet we can become so familiar with them that we don't respond in worship. We don't respond with joy. And that's, of course, the danger. And part of that is because we live in a day and an age where it's hard to slow down and think on things. I mean, 
good grief with, with Twitter and Facebook and social media and smartphones. We're just pounded by what Postman calls the, the, the now this phenomena. Now this, now this, now this, now this. And the ability to stop and, and look at afresh something we know and to chew on it and be amazed by it again. I mean, this happens to us un- unexpectedly. I was just, just yesterday. The sun was setting. I looked out my, my door. I saw the beauty of our backyard and our home, and it was just lit up perfectly the way I hadn't seen it lit up before, and I was just sort of struck with wonder and awe at it, and I called my wife over, and we sat out and looked at it and gave her a hug. And knowing you're, what, it's seeing something glorious, seeing the glory of God in creation. Um, now, sometimes it happens unintentionally. You know, the moment your, your first child's born and you're kind of... You're ready for this, but you weren't ready for it. But you can also set about to do this. You can sit down, and I will meditate on, and I will dwell on who God is. And that's oftentimes the challenge when you want to get past statements you propositionally know that are true. God is powerful. And I think it helps to do things like what we're doing today, of looking at specific implications of his power, uh, looking at specific instances of his power. Because if, if these things are not impressing us and blowing our minds, we're not seeing them rightly. Um, we're not seeing them rightly at all. And, and absolutely, familiarity breeds contempt. So that's where it's helpful to sit down and just think about the awesomeness of God's word, or the awesomeness of his power, or the way he rules history. Any one of these topics, you could sit down and chew on prayerfully for an hour or two, and praise and worship would dwell up, well up within us. And that's what this psalm is calling us to do. I mean, so much of what I need in my life is not new information. It's being reminded of things I know, seeing things I know is true and beautiful. Um, so that's why I want to just close on encouraging you to find time, especially when you find your heart bored or uninterested with God and is the, th- the things of God. If, if you sit and think, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be joyful, singing joyfully, but yeah, that's just not me. You could try to do something about that practically by setting aside some time to to dwell on, look at, and pray that God would give us eyes to see. So the psalmist prays, I forget the psalm's reference, open my eyes, Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. There's, there's a good prayer. Um, and, and praying that God would help us to see glory. I'll, I'll end with this. Go to, go to 2 Corinthians 3. Um, I'll end with this. How is it that you and I grow in our faith? Well, I think there's probably many ways we could speak of what we call progressive sanctification, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 um, frames it in a way that may be, may be new or unfamiliar to you. He's going to argue we grow in our faith by seeing glory. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3. Um, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, and so seeing something glorious. And, and again, glory is another one of those words that we you generally don't use outside of religious context. So it can be another word that becomes sterile and, and dead. Uh, the best ex- explanation of glory I can give, the definition I would come up with would be, glory is that which evokes praise, awe, and wonder from us. 
it does it spontaneously. Uh, you go, you get to the Grand Canyon, you look out, and what comes out of your mouth? Whoa! Or it's what happens when people are watching a, a particularly skillful performance in a sporting event. You know, somebody, somebody's getting the ball and they're dodging the tackle. I think I'm getting this right as a football <laughs> metaphor. And what do people do? They, they, all of a sudden, they're transfixed and they get up on their feet. And what starts coming out of their mouth? Praise. I mean, shout for joy. We, we are people who tell me, oh, I, don't, I don't get into worship, I don't sing. You do for your favorite sports team. We're made to do it. Don't tell me you don't. The, the, the honest thing is, for whatever reason, I don't feel that way about God. Okay, now you're being honest. Now, what can we do to help you see that? But Paul's insisting that the way we grow in our faith is seeing glory. And, I, and if you go on in, into chapter 4, it's how you got saved. Therefore... Having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning and to tamper with the word of God, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, which links back to 3.18, unveiled faces, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the case of those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Which is to say, those who are perishing, you present the gospel, they see it through a veil, they don't see anything beautiful, they don't see anything glorious in it. And that's why they perish. So why do unbelievers perish? They don't see glory in the gospel. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, that's a reference to Genesis 1, has shown in their hearts to give the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in one sense, you could divide all of humanity between those who see glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who don't. Those who are perishing, those who don't perish. So you're saved by seeing glory. You're saved by faith, but the only reason you believe and you entrust yourself to this one is you see him as worthy and glorious and beautiful. That's what I mean by saying you're saved by seeing glory. You will not trust and believe in the one who looks ugly to you or who looks boring to you. So you see glory and you respond in faith. You respond in trusting yourself to him. And then the Christian life is continually seeing glory, seeing God as better and more valuable than the fleeting pleasures of sin. So it, it really, no, no modern writer I'm aware of hits these notes continually and better than John Piper. His focus that you cannot leave the affections behind as if they're unimportant, as if Christianity is purely a mental exercise. The Psalms insist you've got to rejoice with a loud shout, and you can't just fake it. But if you see glory, you will. So the first, and I'll end with this, if, if your heart is cold to worship, if, you, if, you, if you're being honest, and if I'm honest, I'm here frequently. I know I should, but I don't. Then the next, then what I need to see is something beautiful and glorious in, in the gospel of God and Jesus Christ. And then I need to ask God's spirit to show me that. I need to set aside time in his word and in prayer to look to see it. That, that's the solution. Don't, don't fake it till you make it. And don't think, it doesn't matter because I believe these propositional truths is true. So it doesn't matter that my heart is cold. Pursue it by looking at the very things Psalm 33 is having us look at today. On that, we will break. Have a blessed Mother's Day. God willing, we'll see you next week.